Morning, everyone. Well, welcome to our class as we fly through Matthew. I know you don't think we're flying, but trust me, I feel we're flying. But this morning we're, I think, going to finish. What chapter are we on? Chapter 23. And we're going to go from verse 13, I think, to the end of the chapter. At least that's what I plan to happen. So let's join our hearts and prayers as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, always, always, we know this, but we want to acknowledge it openly and clearly. Your anointing is critical. Father, your anointing is central. Father, without your anointing, how can we teach? How can we preach? How can we share with our friends? How can we live the gospel without that anointing of your Spirit, that personal activity of the Spirit's power in us, giving us everything in a functional way that we need to declare the gospel. So, Father, we're asking for anointing of me, and we're asking for anointing of those who are hearing so that your word that is declared in this room, in the sermons, wherever it is, Father, may do the work of Isaiah 55, 11. We know that this is your will. We know you would do it. And yet you ask us and you tell us to ask for this. And so we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, this is probably one of the better known passages in the New Testament. And this is the longest sustained polemic of Jesus against the Jewish leadership. Do you know what word polemic means? It means indictment. A polemic is an indictment. This is the indictment of God against false teachers and false teachings. And so never think, never assume, even in the church, that God is easygoing with bad doctrine. This is a major issue with God. And as I said last week, it should be instructing to us that we are required in order to experience and in order to manifest the integrity, the integrity and the truthfulness of the person and the work of our God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are required to know the Word a whole lot better than we know it. And so, once again, I say, as I regularly say, I know that perhaps in this room, everyone is involved in regular reading and study of the Word. If you're not, you are spending time doing things that God is not pleased with, 
as you neglect the Word in favor of other things. Do you understand what I just said? I didn't say other things, reading the newspaper, watching a television program, going, uh, you know, uh, to the park or whatever, that these are evil. But these are things which are secondary to knowing God. And so we must make a primary decision to make the Word of utmost significance in our own lives and especially in the lives of others, our family members, our friends, and etc. <clears throat> so, in this passage, remember, Jesus has been, has been and has been being confronted by the religious leaders. Here is, here is He who is truth in physical form. Here's the incarnation of God's truth in physical form, confronting man's manipulation and misuse of the law that God has given to his people to declare himself. And they have been attacking him and opposing him. And finally, we have this, if you would, barrage of seven statements against them. And so, in this passage, Jesus utters seven woes against the hypocrisy of these leaders who were corrupting the truth of the law of God with man-made substitutes. And that's significant because one of the biggest issues that I see when people come to understanding or talking about or considering the Old Testament and the law, they don't get what's really going on here. And I'll make a couple of statements about that a little bit later on. Now, what is a woe? A woe was a common Old Testament word often used by the prophets, used for judgment that had to do with how greatly a person will suffer because of unrepentant and continual rejection of God's authority. A woe is this. You are going to suffer the judgment of God. And so, when Jesus is uttering these woes against these leaders, they are hearing a man tell them, you are going to suffer God's judgment. Why? Because they have taken the most precious gift that God has given us the very word and proclamation of the nature and character and the purpose of God Himself, and have taken it and have conformed it and have manipulated it and have changed it into the image of man rather than, rather than letting it declare the image of God. And we have to be careful about that ourselves. Amen? It is a continuing temptation and struggle that each one of us have to take God's Word, which is the image of who He is, and manipulate it and change it and alter it, even if it's a little bit, into something of and about and for us, into our image. It's a continuing issue in our lives, and we have to be careful of this. It's called idolatry. And so, seven woes. Why seven? Well, you remember that the number seven means fullness or completion. You remember in Genesis 2, 2, on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. 
And so when you see these numbers seven, and I can't say whether every single time, but very often the word or the number seven has to do with completion. So what book of the Bible mostly tells us and declares the completion of God's work? Where? Revelation. And if you read the book of Revelation, and hopefully everyone in here has read the book of Revelation, when you read it, you will see that there are 55 sevens in Revelation. What does that mean? It means comprehensive, fullness, completeness. So the seven eyes of the Spirit. Oh, my word, I didn't know God's Spirit had seven eyeballs. Oh, my word. Well, what does that mean? It means, Raul, that God's Spirit sees completely and fully. He has complete and full comprehension. So these seven relate to that kind of a thing, complete, full. So let's listen. And I really don't want you to follow. Just listen. Listen to this, these seven woes. As if you were in the crowd listening to Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the doctors of the law and the priests. Or perhaps envision yourself, if you would, as one of these leaders. Listen. And Jesus is out there, and suddenly he strikes. He's answered their questions. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit comes upon this man. Oh, yes, he's doing this under the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon this man as the Holy Spirit came upon all the prophets. And he begins to speak the Father's woes through Jesus to these leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift on, or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And everyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup 
and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and on all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I, send you pro I sent you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bacariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say, all these things will come upon this generation. Whew. Now, the question is this, is Jesus condemning the Jewish religion? Now, that's often what's taught. Often what's taught is that the law of the Old Covenant is a problem law and needs to be done away with. And thank God we're not under that law anymore. We've been made free. But when Paul talks about the law, you have to make sure you see the context in which he uses that phrase. Is Jesus condemning Jewish religion? In fact, is Jesus condemning religion? I was in a funeral the other day, and the pastor said this. He said, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Let me, let me at least share what I believe he should have said. Christianity is the religion of God that brings us into a relationship with him. You see, Jesus is not condemning the Jewish religion. He's condemning the way the Jewish religion was being taught and practiced by the leaders. So please get this. It's crucial because sometimes some of us from time to time have to have something unlocked in our hearts and minds about the old covenant. You see, with these seven woes. Jesus is saying that the way, let me emphasize that, the way, the way the old covenant was being taught and practiced caused it to be a complete failure as God's means of making his people fit for his presence and worship. Did you hear me on that? The problem was not with the Old Covenant. The problem was not with the law and the Levitical legislation. The problem was the way it was being administered under the leadership 
and the authority of these men. And as a result of the way they taught it and the way the people understood to practice it, it was nullifying God's means of grace that he had given to his people through the old covenant. Now, you, did you notice when you hear, heard these seven woes, did you hear Jesus even one time say woe to the old covenant, woe to the law, woe to the sacrifice? Did you hear that? Whom was he woeing? He was woeing the teachers of false, man-made, misconstrued, misused doctrine. We have to be careful to make sure we get this clear. The teachings and the practices of these leaders had nullified, made of no effect, God's purpose in the law because they taught man-made way of, of salvation. Remember Mark 7, 7, Jesus said this, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, as those things that were necessary and central, the commandments of men. <clears throat> and we have to be careful in our own way of living. We have to be careful. There are many things that many of us hold, I think all of us hold certain practices very dearly. Aren't there things that this is important to you? Amen? Okay. Now, I'll use this as an example. I've used other things as examples and whatever. <clears throat> is cigarette smoking going to cause you to go to hell? There are folks who teach that if you smoke a cigarette, if you go to a movie, if you dance, if you drink, that God is displeased with you and that you are in danger. Now, you notice I did not list if you miss school of the word. <laughs> you did notice that, of course. Some, did any of you notice that? Andy, did you notice that? David, I can't put that in the list. <laughs> well, okay, I, I, I can put it in the list. I should, but I really don't like putting it in the list. So let me say it that way. And we have to be careful. I'll say this again. My wife and I, 48 or 9 years ago, decided to pour all the alcohol down the drain because we felt for us God wanted us to live a way that would not in any way cause other believers to stumble over the issue of alcohol. And so I'm passionate about this. In fact, I'll say, and you've heard me say, I think the better part of valor is just don't drink at all. But does that mean that you should be under a burden or conviction or under condemnation if we go out together and you're sitting at the table and you order a glass of wine and I'm sitting right there with you. You should not feel that way. And I and the rest of us have to be very careful how we promote or convey our convictions that are not central to the gospel. This issue is not a central issue to the gospel. Amen? But it is a passionate is issue with me and with Gene. Now, you have other passionate issues, and so we have to be careful not to make these issues which are not central to override and become central and thus nullifying the central issue. Does that make sense to us? 
because we're, if we're not careful, we're going to think, look at those Pharisees. Thank God I'm not a Pharisee. Well, all of us have Pharisaical attitudes and feelings and practices. Why? We're human beings. Anyone in here not a human being? Henry, did you just raise your hand? Carol didn't see that. Carol, will you help Henry understand he's not a human being? And so, does this mean, this does not mean that Jesus condemned the Jewish religion, the religion of the law with the Levitical legislation as God's means of fellowship with his people through the old covenant. Please get this. The law and the Levitical legislation was God's temporary means of making his people fit for his presence and worship. And in it and it itself was good and holy and effective and glorious. And there was nothing wrong with it in and of itself as to the extent and the purpose for which God used it. But these men were manipulating and changing it into a system of what you need to do and you better do in order to be made fit for God, rather than by faith receiving the revelation of the love of God in these commandments, the revelation of the grace and the love of God in these commandments, and being given the opportunity by being a child of God. Remember, you are my people, my people. They didn't do this to become God's people. They were his people. You remember that before God brought them to Sinai. My people. Look in Genesis, Exodus chapter 3. He's calling them my people. And then when you fail, you have a way of administering God. God has a way of administering his mercy to your life and overcoming the, the failure there as to its condemnation through the Levitical system of sacrifice. It's a good system that did what it was supposed to do by the Spirit until the fullness came in. And so this way, you see, Jesus had come to fulfill the law through his own perfect obedience and sacrificial death, thus undoing all the effects of Adam's rebellion. So in Jesus, all of that system was fulfilled, Colossians 2.17. He is the substance. He is the fulfillment. But until he dies on the cross, that system is still in effect by God's decree. And when Jesus says it is finished, there's a whole lot in that word finished. And one of the things that it's finished is the old covenant is finished as to its viability from God for us because the old covenant has been fulfilled and now we are in the new covenant. But there is no condemnation of that religion of the Jews. The condemnation is of the ill practice and instruction. Therefore, in the new covenant, God's people would receive and experience the love of God. Remember in Romans 5, 5, for the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit who has been given to us. You remember that. So this means that God's motive in His Son since the fall of Adam and Eve has been the replacement of human love with His own kind of divine love in His people. And you remember God does that through a number of ways. 
and the most marvelous and amazing revelation of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's grace is seen in various places. But there is a particular verse, and I don't think this is in your notes, in Exodus that summarizes the entire loving condescension, loving deference of God for His people. And it's Exodus 3, verse 8. Exodus 3, verse 8. There are several verses here and there that you really ought to know, that I ought to know. And Exodus 3, verse 8 is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. Why? Because it has to do with the very nature and character and purpose of God. It is the way that Genesis 1.26 is worked out, and it is fulfilled in John 1.14. What does Genesis 1.26 say? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is the image of God? Well, the image of God takes into a whole lot of things that account, uh, things. But the central image, I believe, that God desires us to image as to His character is His love. How do I know that? Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. Remember that? Do you remember that? Hero Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone is our God, the Lord, Yahweh. And then what does verse 5 say? And you shall love the Lord your God. And how does that work out practically in our lives? Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And loving one another is a display or is an imaging of way God loves us. The way we love one another is to be the image of the way God loves us. Now, how is that love of God? How does God create or fulfill that purpose in Genesis 126? You see it proclaimed in Exodus 3.8. Somebody read Exodus 3.8. I have no idea what it says. And what does the Lord say to Moses? I will what? I will what? I will come down. I will come down. Y-A-R-A-D is the word, yarad. I will come down. That is the principle by which God works in his people from Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 all the way to the end in Revelation. The fulfillment of that is that God's people will be with him forever. Emmanuel, God with us. And this coming down of God, dwelling with and among his people, is displayed in him giving the law and the Levitical legislation. This was the mightiest act of grace and mercy and love until the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet these men were polluting it into their own system. You see, 
The word religion here, because I said in the beginning, the preacher said Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. He's wrong. He's incorrect. The word religion is a good Christian word. How do I know that? Who uses it? There's an apostle who uses it. Did you ever read that? What does he say? Which apostle? Who? James. What does he say? True religion. That distinguishes it from false religion. So if you want to make a distinction, say true religion and false religion. True religion is the religion of God's relationship with us. False religion is a rejection of that. And so you may say it that way. And so the religion of the Jews was always supposed to be a religion about God's love for his people, but the leaders had turned it into a religion of man's love for himself. That's false religion. The word religion means the belief in and worship of a supreme being which is expressed through a system of ethical behavior. It also means that which you put the most uh, um, stock in or emphasis in, the value in. His religion is sports. You've heard of that. That which you worship, you give credence to, you give significance to. That's what the word religion means. So is, in that sense, Christianity religion? Well, of course it is. So true religion, as I said, is defined Deuteronomy five, four, 6, 4, and 5, and Numbers, I'm sorry, I said uh, Leviticus last time, Numbers 19.18. It was Numbers, not Leviticus, Numbers 19.18. That's real religion. That's God's religion. So what is God's religion? God's religion in us <clears throat> is the overcoming by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the renewing of our minds, of our self-centered, self-worship love, human love, transformed in and by His divine love. Isn't that the essence of what God is doing in us? Now, what verse did I kind of quote there? Use the word transform and renewing. What verse is that? Romans 12, verse 2. That's what God is doing. That's God's purpose. But these men had turned it into a system of man-made, man-centered love rather than God-centered love. And therefore, it became false. Now, where did this religion begin? Where did this religion of humanity begin? When? Where did it begin? How did it get here? You remember God created Adam and Eve to be what? Those people who would live in such a way as to image his, himself. What does Romans eight twenty nine say? For we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And what is the image of God's Son that we are displaying? The love of God, the love of God, the love of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, what does Satan do? In verse 2, what does he say to Eve? Hath God said? And immediately he introduces the thought 
of something about man into this relationship and fellowship that they had with God. He introduces something about humanity in there, making humanity the central issue. Well, you can, you, know, you can eat of the tree. Why? Because if you do, God knows what? You're going to be like God. And what happens in verse 6 of Genesis 3? The woman saw the tree, and she saw three things about the tree that were for her benefit, that were about God, but for her benefit and for her own usefulness. And so she grasped at the fruit, right? She took, grasped at the fruit, and ate of the fruit, handed it to Adam, who's right next to her, for goodness sakes, and the last three words of verse 6 are the words, and he ate. And when he ate, sin came into the world through Adam. And as a result, death passed into all the world because all sinned in Adam. Because where were we in Adam? So where did this man religion come from? It came from the heart and mind of Satan introduced into humanity, and humanity went with it. And ever since, God has been moving to free us from the clutches and from the control and from the incarceration of our own self-love, which is sin, which produces lawlessness. By the way, that idea of grasping, and I think I've said this before, humanity in Adam and Eve grasp for something for themselves. Do you see that? They grasp at God. I want God for me, for my benefit. You see, you see what they did. But then, then another man came, another Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And what does Philippians 2 say? He did not what? Grasp. He did not grasp. And because of that, he submitted himself to death, even the death on the cross. And as a result of a man not grasping for himself, but submitting to the leading of God because he loved the Father and the Father loved him, he was exalted, you remember. And you remember the rest of the verses in 9 through 11. So what was Jesus thundering against as he pronounced these seven woes? In the first woe, verse 13, and by the way, how many of you notice that verse 14 is not in your Bible if you don't have King James? If you, don't have, if you have King James, verse 14 is in there. But if you don't have King James, it's either in there with brackets or put on the bottom. Do, do you see where I am? Why? Well, in the earliest manuscripts, it's not in Matthew. It's not there. But it does appear elsewhere. It does appear in Mark. And it doesn't appear as a separate woe, but as an explanation of the woe. So it's, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, but it's not in this listing. First woe, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for effectively, by their teaching, effectively closing the door of the kingdom of God against others rather than opening it. 
we don't want to be a people whose personal preferences that are not part of the gospel are so strong and we make them such a demand to unbelievers that we cause the door of the kingdom of God to be closed against them. Okay? Many of us, sorry, many of you have Catholic backgrounds. I don't. How many of you have a Catholic background? <clears throat> and, and I think this church is doing pretty well in this. But there are believers that would shudder and shake and quiver if they heard me say, Butch, I believe many Catholics are saved. <gasps> oh, yeah, well, those who are saved, those, those, they're saved because they came out of the church. No. I believe, Chris, that they are Catholic, Christian Catholics in the Catholic church. Oh, my God. <laughs> Angel, help me. I'm breathing fast. And one of the things that we do as believers, because we have a passion for others to certainly be freed of poor doctrine and false doctrine, don't we? We sometimes, I've heard this, you need to come out of that Catholic church if you're going to be saved. That's false doctrine. Tell me in the Bible where it says that. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody said that. Who said that? And you shall be saved. Who said that? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Oh, my heavens. Let me go back to this. I thought that was obvious. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to say it. <clears throat> You're going to have to look it up. And you shall be saved. Let me give you another hint. And your whole house. Ah, the Apostle Paul. I left off the important thing, didn't I? Remember he said it to the Philippian jailer. Remember that? How shall I be saved? By the way, I don't think the man was asking for spiritual salvation. He may have been. But how can I be saved from getting my head cut off by the Romans? And Paul took this as an opportunity. He said, oh, save, believe in Jesus Christ. I don't think he was talking spiritually there. The guy was afraid he was going to be killed because the chains had come off. And, you know, you did something wrong. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. See, it's your fault the way you put them on. That's why they fell off. And you, you're going, how can I be saved from the Romans? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul went the other way with it. We need to be careful not to shut up the gospel to others because of the way we present our own personal preferences. Amen? <clears throat> I would love in my flesh hear me, in my flesh, to say to everyone coming into the kingdom, thou shalt not drink, now you can become a Christian. That's wrong. It's not even right to say it to believers. We have to be careful. I use myself as an example because I know I'm the only passionate one here about any particular issue. I know that. Second woe, Verse 15, Jesus condemns the Pharisees' zealous proselytizing of Gentiles, which resulted in that prosel you know, proselyte coming in, that converted one, coming in to become more zealous than the hypocrites themselves. Who is a good example of that? You may have the reference there. The Apostle Paul. He was a 
a, a student of the Gentile, of the Pharisees, the Gamaliel. And this guy went beyond all of them. He tells you that. I was ahead of all my brethren. Third woe, 16 to 22, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were blind leaders of the blind by the way they unbiblically handled their vowels. You like that? How they unbiblically handle the vowels. Vowel is a, oh, well, thank you a lot. She's awake in here anyway. <laughs> She's awake. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, this is Hannah up here. Okay. Everybody, yeah, you may give Hannah a lot. Uh, you see, be careful what you're saying and what you're promising. Be careful. Be careful. I need to be careful in all these areas. I'm not telling you and forgetting me. Fourth woe, 23 to 4. Jesus condemns the Pharisees elevating the minor issues of the law over the major issues such as elevating the practice of giving over the more important issues of justice, mercy, and forgiveness. We believe it is biblically correct <clears throat> to give a tithe. We believe that. There are other Christians who don't, but we believe that, and we think we can substantiate it biblically, okay? We believe that's the beginning place of honoring God through giving, the beginning place. Now, I'm not going to go through the issues, but if you look at Genesis 14 and hop over to Hebrews 7, you'll see some connection there. Now, but we don't want to make tithing a central issue of the gospel. It is an issue, but it is in relation to the central issue, a peripheral issue. It's important, but its importance isn't on the same level as the essence of the gospel. So we don't want to teach in a way that infers that if you're not giving a tithe, you're less than what do you call it, a good Christian? Should you be tithing? Yes. And if you're not, you just need to ask the Lord. I mean, ask yourself, why am I not tithing? What is it about God do I not trust? But it's not an issue of salvation. It's an issue that has to do with our walk. What's the next one? Where was I? <clears throat> oh, five and six go together, if you would. 25 to 28, Jesus continued his condemnation of the Pharisees' practice by condemning their outward piety as corrupt, not motivated by inward piety, but pride and self-ambition and self-honor. have to be careful that we're not promoting ourselves in a way that we are not to be promoting ourselves, but our promotion is to be promoting the righteousness of Christ and not something about my own walk with Christ. So you're talking one day to someone and y'all are discussing them. Oh, yes, you, well, you know, when I was reading the Bible the other week because I read all of Hebrews, you know, whatever, and it was a really good study, whatever, you know, and then you go on. Oh, Congratulations how wonderful you are. We do these things sometimes inadvertently, but most of the time we're letting others know how spiritual we are. Amen? Amen? We have to be careful of this. 
we're robbing God of the honor. The seventh woe, Jesus told them that outwardly they loved the prophets, but inwardly they were plotting to kill the prophets. In verses 33 to 36, Jesus summarizes his judgment against them by calling them, listen, he's calling them snakes and vipers. And to whom is he associating them when he says vipers and serpents? Satan. Then the last three verses, 37, 8, and 9. You just heard the polemic. Remember the indictment, the judgment of Jesus against the leadership. And Jerusalem in this, con- excuse me, in this context, in this context, Jerusalem represents the stronghold or the location of the false teachers. Now, you have to be careful what I just said. In this context. Didn't I say that, Steve? Don't go out of here and say, Peter said Jerusalem represents false teaching. In this context, in this particular issue, Jesus is using uh, Jerusalem within the context of condemning the religious leaders. Why? Because their home base was what? Jerusalem. And also Jerusalem, you remember, will be the city in which the mobs will rise up against Jesus in just a few more hours. And he says this, from the polemic, all of a sudden you see the wrath of God, and then all of a sudden you see the lamenting of the Son of God. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That forms the context of the next two chapters. Having heard that and leaving the temple complex, the temple mount, the disciples are going to want to know, What's going on? What is happening here? Amen? So remember, what is being condemned here is not the old Jewish religion. What is being condemned here is the man-made manipulation and altering of that. We read in Romans 7, what? The law is good and holy. You remember that? Why? Because it is God's means of declaring himself and ministering to us, fulfilled in Christ completely. That fulfillment now lives in me, and the absolute perfection and fulfillment of the law has been applied to us in Christ. And the forgiveness of God has been applied to us in Christ. And now the Holy Spirit is not trying to get us to obey the law because in Christ that law has been already obeyed by us. But the Holy Spirit is now working in us to conform us to the law that is already obeyed in Christ. Amen? Okay.